Welcome to our Catechism class. It's a weekly look at the Heidelberg Catechism to help you learn Christian doctrine with a warm and practical application. Each lesson has its own study guide, and the web link to find that guide can be found in the episode notes. Okay, let's start the lesson. Welcome to our Catechism class today. In this short lesson, we're going to look at legal oaths, the kind of oath that you would take in court, or before a lawyer, or at a wedding, before a minister. Um, Before we think about this subject, you need to read the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 37, question 101 to 102, and you need to read the Bible, more importantly. And you need to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 34 to 37, Romans chapter 1, verse 9, and James chapter 5 and verse 12. So if you haven't done that, you should pause the recording just now, and then after you've done all that homework, then you should start again and listen again. Now before we begin, I want to give you an ethical dilemma of my own just to think about. In 1997, I was involved in a road traffic accident. It was at one of those awful many roundabouts where no one seems to know who has the right of way. I approached the roundabout and looked right, as you do, and I saw a car approaching, but it seemed to be a long way off, so I proceeded cautiously and slowly onto the roundabout. What I didn't estimate was the speed of the other vehicle. It was a 30 miles an hour limit. The other vehicle must have been doing at least 60 It was driven by two notorious local rascals, for want of a better word. And so their car drove straight over the top of the pimple on the road, not round it, as it should have done, and did a little bit of damage to the front of my car, just caught the front of my car. No one was injured at the time. After all, the two boys who got out of the car then pushed the car off the scene and into a side street before the police could arrive and properly measure up the road. Strangely, though, a few days later, they both developed whiplash and sore backs. And although the police didn't consider it worthy of an investigation or a prosecution on either party, uh, those two boys demanded compensation, and so it went to a civil court. On the day of the hearing, I met a barrister who'd been hired by my insurance company, who asked if I wanted to settle and what I would need to settle. And I replied, I don't want anything. I wasn't hurt. Um, There's no need for me to have any compensation. And he replied, OK, but your opponents in this case are claiming that they were hurt. So you'll have to appear in court as a witness. Fine, I said. No problem with that. But I don't want to take an oath. I'll affirm. The barrister was shocked. He was absolutely certain that it's going to look really suspicious to the judge that a minister of religion wouldn't swear before Almighty God. It would seem that you didn't want to tell the truth. If you weren't going to promise before God to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I asked him why. He said it'll just make you look guilty. So I quoted Matthew chapter 5 verse 34 to verse 37. Jesus said, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. In the eyes of the barrister, I just caused him the case. Basically, we had surrendered. The plaintiffs, the rascals, were awarded compensation, and I walked away with £600 to cover my insurance access and a week's lost work. My insurance company was less than happy. Now here's my question. What would you have done in that situation? And with hindsight and a better understanding of Reformed doctrine, what would I do if that situation arose right now? Well, let's think about this ethical challenge. Do we swear an oath by Almighty God, or do we not? You're listening to the Semper Reformata podcast with Bob McAvoy. So, have you thought about what you would do if you were asked in court to swear by Almighty God that you would tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Well, after all, Jesus said we're not to swear at all. And it's on that basis that some Christian groups and sects will always refuse to make any oath whatsoever. Of course, as a Christian, my word should be my bond. I should always mean what I say, and when I make a promise, I should keep it. In a truly Christian society, there would be no need for any oaths at all. The catechist, however, at first glance, seems to differ from what Jesus has said. Jesus says, do not swear at all. The catechist, our instructor, says, may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner? Yes! Now, why does it seem that the catechist is disagreeing with Jesus? Well, first of all, let's note that the passage in which Jesus is teaching his disciples not to swear needs some careful working out. It needs some explanation. It needs proper exegesis. What is Jesus really teaching his disciples about? And what is the context of the lesson that he's teaching? Let's read it again. But this time, let's consider some of the surrounding verses. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 17. And Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law, till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 33. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, 
No, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So there are three things that we should notice here. We should notice the context of Christ's teaching. We should notice the precedent of the law, what the law was actually teaching. And we should see the practice of the early church. So the context of Christ's preaching, I want you to see here that Jesus is addressing a problem caused by the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as usual, have been adding to the law and thus misinterpreting it. They've been adding the sayings and the teaching of men to the law of God, hedging about the law, making those human teachings mandatory, binding upon the Jews. So Jesus prefaces his teachings by warning that he has not come to abolish the law, rather to fulfil it. And with that in mind, he then begins to call out those hypocritical Pharisees on their interpretations of the law, including their practices when they swear an oath. Now, because pious Jews won't utter the name of God, they would swear by other, lesser things. So they would swear by heaven, or by earth, or by Jerusalem, or even by their own head. Now, sometimes you'll hear modern people doing something similar to that. They will say things like, I swear on my mother's grave. I swear by my children's lives. Things like that. And basically, the Pharisees wanted to impress their hearers about their intention to fulfill their vows without the sanction that comes of swearing before the God who heard them making those vows. It's a kind of a get-out clause. So that if they go back on their word, their defence will be, I didn't swear by God, so God won't judge me. Now Jesus' instruction not to swear at all has to be seen in that context. It is better not to make any oath than to make an oath that is meaningless or that you don't intend to keep. Christians should always keep their word. James' teaching in James 5 and verse 12 simply echoes the words of Christ. Same words appear, heaven, earth, yes, no, and so on. So the context of Christ's teaching is that he's talking to the Pharisees who were misinterpreting the law by adding their own qualifications to it. What was the teaching of the law in this? What's the precedent of the law? The precepts that were being taught, the law that Jesus is not going to abolish which he said he's not going to abolish but fulfil, but which the Pharisees were hedging about with terms and conditions. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and verse 13, we're taught this, You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. So the law that Jesus is not abolishing tells us that we are to make vows unto the Lord. Just like the Catechist says. That's the teaching of the law. Deuteronomy, the word means the second law. The precedent of the law was that we take oaths unto the Lord and we do it in a way that honours him. What was the practice of the early church? Well, the practice of the early church bears that law out. 
In fact, Jesus himself was prepared to call upon God to be his witness. In Matthew chapter 16 and 62 to 64, the high priest arose and said to Jesus, Do you answer nothing? This is at his trial before the Sanhedrin. What is it these men testify against you? Verse 63, But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Jesus is under oath. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's like in a courtroom situation. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, It is as you said. I put you under oath by the living God. It is as you said. Paul also made vows before the Lord. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, he writes, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. In the book of Hebrews, we read that God himself made an oath. In Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16. And here the writer says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Now in all of that, the early church was reflecting the practice of the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 1 to 12, Jeremiah writes, If you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved, and you shall swear the Lord lives, in truth, in judgment, in righteousness. In 1 Kings in chapter 1 and verse 29, the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives. So the overall teaching of the Bible is that we must keep our word as Christians. When we do have to make an oath, there should be no get-out clause, there should be no prevarication. We are calling upon God, who is our judge, to hear our words and to judge us whether we fulfil those vows or not. The late R.C. Sproul writes this, Jesus' teaching leads us to conclude that it is better not to make a vow than to swear an oath that we have no intention of keeping. It also reinforces the point that oaths and vows should not be made on just any occasion, but that they should be reserved only for occasions of great import and lasting significance. In other cases, we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. But in all circumstances, we must strive to keep our word, R.C. Sproul. Now, can you think of when those lasting and important circumstances might be? Well, it might be a court case, when we are acting as a witness to events or circumstances, when earthly justice might depend on our honesty. Or, for example, in a marriage ceremony, where we stand, husband and wife-to-be, stand before a minister, 
Uh, and we swear before God to love and to honour and to obey, to remain faithful for better, for worse, for richer, or for poorer in sickness or in health, till death us do part. And we say that we take our vows before God. And so the catechist himself gives us some good reasons for being prepared to take our most important promises before the Lord. The first circumstance might be because our civil authorities may demand it in order that truthfulness prevails in our society. So when a government makes a legal demand that does not contradict the law of God, we should be obeyed, prepared to obey. When the government demands it of its subject or when necessity requires it, says the Catechist, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth. Of course, it's also a tacit acknowledgement before the court that there is a very much higher court, the court of Almighty God, where all of our words and actions will already be revealed, and where all lies and untruths are eternally uncovered, and that our heavenly judge cannot be deceived by our words and our excuses, and he will be our final judge. The second reason that we should make our vows before the Lord is that if we swear by God's name and it is seen that we keep our word, it brings glory to God. The honesty in our lives testifies to God's dealing in our lives. It is to God's glory. And the third reason is because it may actually bless a neighbour. It may be for our neighbour's good. You can imagine the scenario. A neighbour falsely accused in my testimony honestly given in the sight of God, knowing that he hears my words, may help to establish his innocence. And so the Catechist says such oath-taking is based on God's word and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and New Testament. Now before we finish, there's one more aspect of this Lord's Day that we need to mention. For the Catechist is teaching us about the use of the Ten Commandments as our guide to how we ought to live the Christian life, in grateful response to what Christ has done for us on the cross. He devotes a whole Lord's Day, a whole section, to each of the commandments, except for this one. This third commandment gets two Lord's Days. Now why is this? Well, in the 16th century, when the Catechism is being formulated, swearing oaths is a huge problem among the population, especially among Roman Catholics who would frequently swear by dead saints. So they would say, I swear by St. Thomas, I swear by St. Paul, I swear by St. John, and so on and so on. Whoever the so-called saint was, that person is dead. And if that person is in glory, then they're not watching over us they're not listening to our speech. They're not omnipresent. And more importantly, no dead person, not even those who are now in heaven with the Lord, have the ability to hold us to account if we break a promise. Only God can judge our actions and our words in eternity. So a trip to attribute a judicial oversight to any glorified saint is to make that saint equal with God. And that's the sin of idolatry. So the catechist adds a further question in question 102. He asks, 
may we also swear by saints or other creatures? And his answer is an emphatic no. A lawful oath is a calling upon God, who knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. And no creature is worthy of such honour. So, now that we've got to the bottom of all this, let's think back to my decision that day in court. Did I do the right thing? Should I have sworn by Almighty God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? Or should I not? Now what would you do? Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.